Uh, I'm going to pray in just a minute. I'm a little tired from the men's retreat. It was a great retreat. Uh, but I'm worn out from all that fun with Xavier. So I'm going to pray and ask God for his help this morning. Um, I'm thankful to have been on the retreat. It was a, a sweet time for us to get together as men in the church and to focus on meditation on the Word of God, not just merely intaking uh, information, but meditating on the truth of the Word of God. And so it's our prayer today that that would be what comes of this sermon as well. So let's pray, ask the Lord for his help. Father, we give you thanks that we are able to gather together this morning, that in your kindness, God, you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, Jesus, Lord, that you have made this revelation known in the Word of God. We are thankful, Lord, that we have the opportunity to freely come together because Jesus has paid our debt. Pray that you would bless our time now. Open the eyes of our heart to the truth of your Word, Lord. We pray that you would not merely, Lord, give us information, but that you would transform our hearts, that we might be more like you, conformed into the image of your Son by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, have you ever heard somebody say something along these lines? Maybe it's because you did something. Maybe it's because somebody next to you did something. But have you ever heard something like this? Man, that's not okay. You've got to make that right. This statement implies something. It implies that a wrong has been done and that there's a moral necessity to make it right. Whatever has been done, if it were to be left alone or if it were to be ignored... It would bring about an ongoing, lingering, moral injustice. And it's this idea, the idea that there is a necessity for some wrong to be made right that underlies our text today. Today we're going to look at the fifth and final of the sacrifices in our series in Leviticus. And this offering, uh, the sacrifice that we're going to see today, we read in our Bibles in the translation of the ESV that it's called the guilt offering. And that's not a bad translation because this is going to deal with the fact that our sin means that we're guilty. It's also going to deal with the fact that we have to bear up under the weight of guilt, feel the guilt. But the word literally means a reparation, a reparation offering. And in its simplest form, a reparation is something that is done or given to make amends for some wrong that is done. In other words, the reparation is, man, you've got to make that right. Something's happened that is wrong, and it needs to be made right. And so we're going to see today that the reparation offering was given to make amends for certain sins that were committed. It was offered to try and make right what had gone wrong. And so if you want to follow along today, we're going to be reading in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14 through chapter 6, verse 7. This can be found on page 84 in the Black Bibles around you. Leviticus chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish, blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. 
If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor, neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any and all of the things that people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and re will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. And give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. He shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Before we jump into the text, we want to just start from the beginning with our big idea this week. And our big idea is this, that in order to experience the presence of God, now remember that experiencing the presence of God is the goal to which the entire sacrificial system is moving. This is always the end and the goal, God's presence. In order to experience the presence of God, reparation for sin must be made to God. If we are going to experience God's presence, then there must be amends made for our sin, for the wrongs that we have done. These things need to be made right. Now, before we jump into, we're going to be looking this morning at six different aspects of the reparation offering and the implications for us that go with that. But before we do that, I don't know if you noticed that the sins are referred to in this text, in our section, the sins are referred to as breaches of faith. And that's a term that, that we hear now, and it's, it's a little different than we've heard before. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean by a breach of faith? Well, a breach of faith is a term that deals with it, that refers to dealing with God treacherously. This is to treacherously deal with God, to commit a treacherous sin. We hear this word used in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 27. It says this, Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this also your fathers blasphemed me, and here we go, by dealing treacherously, treacherously with me. Dealing treacherously, that's the same word that's translated in our text, breach of faith. This describes acts of disloyalty and infidelity to God. And so as we look at these six different aspects and implications of the reparation offering, this is dealing with treacherous sins against God. So the first aspect that we want to see that we glean from the reparation offering is this. The reparation offering is going to teach us that treacherous sins against God can be unintentional. Treacherous sins against God can be unintentional. Look at verse 15 in chapter 5. If anyone commits a breach of faith, a treacherous sin, 
and sins unintentionally. Now we live in a culture and we live in a time when we have been, I think, so heavily geared to think that what determines the treachery of a sin is motive and intent. But this text is telling us that though motive is a factor in the treachery of sin, it's not the ultimate and it's not even the primary factor. These are unintentional sins. There was no motive to sin. They're inadvertent sins, and yet they are declared to be acts of treachery against God. So what is it that makes a sin treacherous? What is the determining factor? Well, the term that we're going to use in this sermon is nearness to God. It's the nearness to God of a sin that makes it treacherous. What does that mean? I'm hoping to explain that a little better. These sins are sins in regard to the holy things of the Lord. And because they're sins in regard to the holy things of the Lord, they're then understood as a different category of sin. Now, the holy things of the Lord, specifically in this context, would have referred to those portions of the offering that would have been set apart for the priests. Okay? Now, do you remember in the tribute offering what we heard? That these portions of the offering that were set apart to the priest were first given by the worshiper to God. They were offered up to God, and then it was God's prerogative, God's decision. It was God who then gave these to the priests. So to sin in the holy things of the Lord, which would have been somehow inadvertently taking and eating from something that was set aside for the priests. Uh, It could have even been used of somebody who had dedicated a portion of their earnings as a tithe to God and then inadvertently spent them on something else. But when this was done, it was akin to robbing from God. And this is what we mean by these trespasses are nearer to God because these things, it's not a sin against a common thing, but something that has been set apart by God. And so in that sense, these things are nearer to God. Now, one of the things that would happen is this, is that the common worshiper would come in. Now, if they were coming to the sacrificial system, right, then they are coming to be made pure. They're not pure. They're, the stuff now that, that is for the priest, has been set aside by God for a special purpose. That's why they're holy things. Remember, at the basic meaning of holiness is to be set apart. These things have been set apart for a unique part of the worship service. And then the common Israelite was coming in. He was not yet fully ritually clean. And what would happen is, as he partook of this, he would, he would, in essence, transmit his unholiness to these holy things, and they would therefore become unholy. He would transmit his impurity to the things that were pure, and they would become unpure. So here's the point. It's costly to make what is holy unholy, and to make what is pure impure. A debt must be paid. It is costly to make what is holy unholy. And this is true whether you mean to do it or not. Now, we think, okay, that's, that's great. That's the sacrificial system. Here are these things set apart. And what does that have to do with us today? I want to read a few statements to us, a few common phrases that we would hear, hear every day. I want to ask you, do these resonate in your heart? Do you think, yeah, yeah, I think those are right. Because if we do think those are right, it might reveal that we have set up a structure in our heart where motive and intention become the defining aspects of whether a sin is treacherous or not, rather than the holiness of God. 
What about these statements? Have you ever heard this, or do they resonate with you? Well, they really had good intentions, right? Or, I know they didn't really mean any harm. Or this one, you can't really hold it against them. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know any better. Or here's one, it's really the thought that counts. But here's the thing, when it comes to sin, it's not just the thought that counts. It's God's judgments that count. It's God's holiness that counts. It's God's holiness and not the intention of our hearts that ultimately determines whether a sin is treacherous or not. We live in a society we have been so, so shaped and molded to think that our heart is the center of everything, that the world and everything else revolves around our heart. But at the end of the day, the treachery of a sin is determined by the holiness of God and not the intention of our heart. The next aspect, the second thing that we want to see from the reparation offering this morning is this. The reparation offering demonstrates to us that we must deal with God based on his standards, not our own. We've got to come to God and deal with God on God's standards and not our own. Look at verse 15. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation, reparation is what that word means, a ram without blemish out of the flock. And then it says this, valued in silver shekels. Well, another way that you can translate that, and I think fits better with the text, is this, or you can bring the ram out of the flock or its value in silver shekels. And then it's according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So you could bring this ram for God, to God as reparation for sin, or you could bring the value of that ram in silver shekels. And the way that the silver was determined, the value of the silver was determined based on what the text says is the shekel of the sanctuary. Now the sanctuary had its own set of weights, its own set of scales to determine the value of the silver to see if it was enough for the ram so that it would be an even thing. Now we ask ourselves, why would the sanctuary have its own set of weights? Was it that the Israelites, common Israelites, didn't know how to balance their own weights? Well, I don't think so. Well, could it be that they were worried that those who were bringing the silver were going to mess with the weights and thereby keep a little extra silver for themselves and not give it to God? Well, it could have been that, but the priests could have done the same thing. It's not like the priests were free from corruption all the time. All you have to do is read through the Old Testament to see that. So what's going on? And I think it's this. That by having a set of sanctuary weights that was to be used for this reparation offering, separate from all other uses, is a way to demonstrate that when we come to God, and especially when we come to God to make amends for the wrongs that we have done, we must do so based on God's standards and not our own. It's as if God's saying, you're going to use the sanctuary scales. You're going to come to me on my terms and not your own. Now, we live in a culture where we have been taught over and over and over again that God is going to meet us on our terms, that God is going to need to come and to, to do what we feel is right and we feel like we need versus, versus having us understand that, man, we've got to come to God on his terms. We've got to come to God based on what God says. Can you see how backwards this is when we think that way? 
Now, one of the ways we see this is a lot of times churches can inadvertently structure their church around this idea. Many people, if they have kids, their number one criteria for a church is a, a kids' ministry. Do they have a lot of kids? Is there more kids? Will my children have other children to be around? Other people are looking for churches with ministries where they have people in the same life situation that they're in. Is there a young singles ministry? Do they have a young married couples ministry? Do they have uh, ministries geared around perhaps my favorite hobby? Is there sports outreaches? Is there crafting ministries? Or whatever it may be. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. All of them can be a great blessing to a church. But here's the kicker. Usually what's not happening, people are not asking themselves, is this church faithfully preaching the word of God and thereby instructing and helping people know how to come to God based on his terms and not their own? So we ask this question. When we think about church, and maybe you'll have to talk to somebody, maybe you've invited somebody to church, and well, I don't know, does embassy have this, or do they have that? We have to ask ourselves this. Are we looking for God in church, or are we looking for more people like ourselves? Are we looking for God in church, or are we looking for more people like ourselves? And I would simply encourage us in this way, look for God. God is the only one who can satisfy the longings of our soul. God is the only one whose rule and reign will bring joy and peace and blessedness. So look for God. God is the only one who fully possesses and graciously gives life and gives it abundantly. And so why would we want to look for anything else? Now, don't get me wrong. I love people who are interested in what I'm interested in. It makes conversation fun. I like to talk about that stuff, but they cannot satisfy my soul. They cannot give me life and life abundantly. And so when you think of church, look for God. The third thing that we see in the reparation offering, and I think this is the one that jumped the most out at me this week, is that the reparation offering teaches us that the effects of sin are far more widespread than we often think. The effects of sin are far more widespread than we think. And I think this is one of the central and key aspects of the reparation offering because it's what we actually learn from the nature of the reparation and the restitution that is made. Look in verse 16. It says in chapter 5, verse 16, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth to it to give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. So when you sinned unintentionally against the holy things of the Lord, you came and it was not enough to simply return what you had taken. It wasn't enough to replace what you had eaten inadvertently or taken inadvertently. You had to add a fifth to it. And then on top of that, you had to give an entire ram to God for reparation. Other times, the law will call for restitution to be made by doubling what has been taken or injured or killed. Sometimes, you have to pay four and five times what was lost to make restitution. Now, all of this demonstrates, I think, one simple fact. The effects and weight of sin are far greater than the isolated effect of any individual trespass. Let me say that again. The effects and weight of sin are far greater than any isolated effect of any individual trespass. What do I mean? Think about this. If I steal 
a box of Snickers. Well, no, I'm going to steal Reese's if I'm going to steal. I don't want to steal, but Reese's is my favorite. So if I steal a box of Reese's from, I mean, if you're going to steal and you're going to get in trouble, you might, right? You know what I'm saying? Take what you like. No, don't steal. That's bad. Okay, I told you I was tired from the retreat. This is what happens when you get off your notes. If I steal a box of Reese's from the store, I have done more than just deplete the store of its inventory and cost them money. I've done more than that. Here's the thing. Inevitably, the employees of the store are going to notice that the box is missing. They're going to know that something has been stolen. And you know what that's going to do to the employees of the store? Eventually, as these things take place, maybe once, twice, three times, whatever it may be, they are going to become more jaded and less trustworthy. They're going to become more suspicious. Now, think about this. What if I get caught stealing it? What does that do to my community of relationships? If you know me, you're going to trust me less in that moment. You see, what happens is I, in that moment, especially if I get caught, my community of friendships, I have now robbed those people in my community of relationships of the ability to fully trust me. And when you can't fully trust somebody, relationships are harder, aren't they? You have to think, like, can I divulge this information? Can, can I be open about this with this person? Because I don't know. So when trust is broken, life becomes harder. Do you see how the effect of this sin, which we might think of as this isolated incident, spreads far wider than the momentary act of that trespass? It goes far beyond the cost of the candy bars or whatever it may be. Here's one way to think of it. Every trespass, every sin, it's like a rock. And the pond, the, the, the created universe is like a pond. You guys all seen this? You ever toss a rock up, goes into the pond, right? Well, what happens when that takes place is that the pond water is displaced far beyond the actual point of contact, isn't it? The ripples of that rock reverberate throughout the entire pond, and everything in the water is somehow affected by that action. You got a frog, it's hiding under a lily pad trying to stay cool, right, in the shade of the day. The ripples come by, moves the lily pad, sun hits the frog, you know. There's no such thing, friends, as an isolated sin. There just really isn't. Sin spreads like drops of poison in water. And every drop steadily increases the toxicity of the water. And every drop then affects everything else that's in the water. Maybe we think, maybe you're in here today and you just think, my sin's really not affecting anybody else. We've got the sin, nobody knows it. Nobody has any idea of what's going on, and you think, my sin's really not hurting every, anybody else. Maybe there are some people who think this, that because nobody can see what I'm looking at on my computer, it's not affecting anybody else. It, it really isn't hurting anybody else. I mean, nobody knows I'm doing this. But they've never stopped to think about this. Every minute that they spend on a site like that, ups the value of the site. The ad prices grow higher and higher. And what happens is these companies become worth more and more money. And then because of this sin that we think is isolated and nobody else is struggling with it, we begin to support and pour into a culture that degrades humanity into objectified commodities to be bought and sold for the indulgence and for the fulfillment of sinful desires. And we do it at the expense of those created in the image of God. We rob them of their dignity and their humanity. And so you may think nobody knows about this sin. It can't really be hurting anybody else. It's just another drop of poison in the water. 
increasing the toxicity of a fallen world. And friends, we are called as followers of Jesus to diminish the toxicity of this world and not increase it. There are no isolated sins. A little leaven really does leaven the entire lump. Sin is far greater than we often realize. The fourth thing that we want to see is that the reparation offering teaches us that a well-trained, God-shaped conscience is vital to faithfulness in a fallen world. A good conscience, a God-shaped conscience is vital to living in a fallen world. Look at verse 17 in chapter 5. If anyone sins doing any of these things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. This idea, then he realizes his guilt, I'm going to read a statement again from Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Leviticus. I think it's going to help us to understand what this means and what it doesn't mean. Wenham states, This does not seem to refer to ignorance of the law. Men are presumed to know that they must not take priestly property. Nor is it a question of subsequently learning that such and such belong to the priests. If someone had discovered that they had inadvertently taken sacred property, they were expected to return it plus 20% plus a ram. Let me pause in the comment there. In verses 17 through the end of chapter 5, in this section where the person realizes their guilt, one thing that we don't see is there's not, you must repay what was taken and add a fifth to it. And the reason is because it's not talking about something that's known. They don't, they don't know what's happened. They're just starting to realize, to sense their guilt. Let me continue with Wenham. Instead, the discovery that he has done something wrong comes through his conscience. He feels guilty and he starts to suffer for it. That is, he bears his iniquity. The idea of bearing your iniquity is, is to be having to bear up under the weight of the way that that sin feels. And what's going on here is he's not even sure exactly what he's done. He has a guilty conscience. Now, sin can and should at times produce a weightiness on us because sin's not good. Sin's bad for us. Sin's bad for the world. Now, having a well-trained God-shaped conscience becomes vital for faithfulness in this world. One of the ways that we can see the importance of a good God-shaped conscience, and what do I mean by God-shaped conscience? Conscience is this idea, right? And uh, at, the, at the heart of conscience is the word science or knowledge. And so your conscience is going to be the way that you react and, and feel based on the knowledge that you have. And so what we're talking about is a conscience right? That is shaped by God's word, by God's promises, by God's testimonies, by what God says is right, by God's judgments. And one of the ways that we can see the importance of a God-shaped conscience is when we think about the way that the morality of the Bible is portrayed. The commandments and the prohibitions in the Bible are not merely an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts. The entirety of biblical instruction is meant to shape us to shape us into those who bear God's image, into those who are conformed into the image of Christ and therefore those who walk in biblical wisdom. And one of the ways that biblical wisdom functions is through your conscience. If you're growing in biblical wisdom, 
then your conscience will become more and more in tuned with the ways of God. You see, the morality of the Bible is not a morality of rule keeping. It's a morality of transformation. The Bible does not call us to simply be those who keep certain rules. The letter of the law, friends, is important. But it's important because the letter of the law reveals the spirit of the law and it's the spirit of the law that will transform your heart to be more like God. This is why, you guys remember, Jesus pronounces a woe on those who want to make biblical morality a morality of rule keeping. Listen to Jesus' words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's not merely about the external functions. It's about the heart behind it, a conscience. And so when you come to your Bible, are you coming to it simply to find out the rules that you need to keep? Or do you come to your Bible because you see it as a means of knowing God and as a source of transformation in your soul? Let me ask us this. Do you think, and and all of us can fall into this, I think, at times, do you ever think that you're doing well because you're reading a certain amount of your Bible each day? Like, I got the checklist done, I've read my Bible, or... Are you reading your Bible to know God more deeply? Are you coming to your Bible because in the Bible you encounter God and can be transformed to be more like him? Do you come to church because that's just what you're supposed to do? Or do you come to church so that you can encounter God on God's terms and thereby be transformed to be more like him? We need to have God-shaped consciences if we're going to live faithfully in a fallen world because the Bible doesn't lay out every single situation that we're going to encounter. We need biblical wisdom and we need consciences to be shaped by God. The fifth thing that we want to notice in the reparation offering is that this offering makes it clear that making God complicit in your sin is treacherous to a whole nother level of wrong. Making God complicit in your sin is just really, really bad. If you want to put it real simply. Now there's a reason. This section in chapter 6, uh, 1 through verse 7, this is the last section. As far as the instruction to the worshipers in these offerings. Last words are important. This section is set apart. This deals with sins that are intentional, but even more to the point. Because it can talk about intentional sins other places and it's not talked about as a treacherous sin or a breach of faith against the Lord. More to the point, these intentional sins are not just done, but then when somebody gets in a pinch, gets caught, they invoke God's name, which is to say they swear falsely. This is what it means to swear falsely. To swear was to invoke the name of God, to, to, to lend support and truthfulness to whatever your claim was. And so in this case, they're swearing falsely. They're invoking God's name to say, I did not commit this trespass, when indeed they committed the trespass. So it's not just that it's intentional. It's that they have taken God's name to justify their law-breaking. In this trespass, 
they have not just sinned against the things of God, but they have sinned against the very name of God. God's name is nearer to God than God's things. This is an act of treachery to a whole nother level. Now, this can still happen today. There is probably the common one that we might hear, Lord willing, more outside of the church than in the church, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, no, really, I swear to God, and you know that whatever they're saying, they're not telling the truth. They invoke God's name to try to lend credence to what they're doing. Or, what about the charlatan preachers who invoke God's name to try to swindle people out of their money. God really wants you to sow this seed of faith to our ministry. Now, you may be struggling on your bills. You may not have a lot. But if you will give us $1,000 today, God will bless you abundantly. And all they're doing is they're taking the name of God to swindle people. Or this one might hit a little more close to home for some of us. What about those who simply state that their sinful feelings are from God? Have you ever heard anything like this? Well, I know the Bible says I shouldn't get divorced, but I just know that God really wants me to be happy and that other person makes me happy. And so I just know that God wants me to be with them. Well, I know the Bible says that as a Christian, I should marry another Christian, but I really know that God wants me to be happy and so God wants me to marry this unbeliever. In all of these ways, loved ones, we make God complicit in our sins. This shouldn't be the way it is. Sin's wretched, sin's destructive, sin's wicked all on its own, but when we make God complicit in our sins, we elevate it to a whole nother level of wrong. Now the sixth thing that we want to look at is that the reparation offering reveals to us that external religious expression means nothing without an internal repentant heart. External Religious expression means nothing without an internal repentant heart. We've seen that a reparation offering, we just talked about this idea of realizing guilt, bearing iniquity, experiencing, right? Bearing up under the weight of guilt. Now, for the person who had committed an intentional sin, who had sworn falsely against the Lord, they couldn't make reparation until they realized their guilt. There had to be that sense of guilt within them. Now we learn in Numbers chapter 5 and verse 7, and it's speaking here of the reparation offering, that they were also called to confess their sin. And then, of course, there was restitution that had to be made. So what do we see? We see a remorse over guilt that takes place. We see confession of sin that takes place. And then we see the willing heart making restitution for what has happened. In other words, we see true repentance in somebody. Reparation, in order for it to be made to God, there has to be true repent, uh, uh, repentance. Excuse me. Now, do you remember what David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 7? David writes this psalm after his sin with Bathsheba. You could imagine, here's the king held up as a beacon of what it means to know the true and living God, and he has fallen, and he has fallen hard, and, and at that moment, have you ever been there? You've sinned, and you've made a mess of your reputation, you've made a mess of the relationships around you, and in those moments, all you want to do is make it right. Have you ever been like that? This is a mess. How can I make this right? This is what David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If the offerer brought their offering to God and they came with a broken heart, God would not despise them. But if they came without a broken heart over their sin, God would despise their sacrifices, even though he commanded them. Because the external religious act was nothing without the internal working of the heart. Now, one of the reasons that we wanted to preach this sermon series through Leviticus is because we wanted you to see the importance of ritual of rhythms in our life. Rituals are soul and desire shaping, but we must always remember that rituals are for the heart but, and they must come from the heart. A ritual without the heart is just jazzercise, just exercise, whatever. Now, up to this point, we've seen in the reparation offering that treacherous sins can be inadvertent sins. We've seen that, man, we've got to deal with God on his standards, not our own. We've seen that the effects of sin are often far greater than we think. A well-tuned, God-shaped conscience is crucial to living this life. We've also seen that making God complicit in our sin is just really, really bad. And external religious devotion without a changed heart means nothing. But do you know what we haven't seen yet? Do you know what's been missing up to this point? Is what we haven't done yet is we haven't just stopped and marveled We haven't marveled at the actual glory and beauty of this text. I don't know if you noticed this, but one thing we haven't talked about is the way that each of these sections ends. Each of these sections ends with this statement somewhere in the end, and he shall be forgiven. We've seen that even inadvertent sins are treacherous against God. We know that the wages of every sin is death. We know that all of us probably in some way, at some point, have got, made God complicit in our sin, which means now we've just elevated that sin to a whole nother level of wrong. But what we don't see is we do not see the final word in these passages as a word of condemnation but a word of forgiveness. We don't see the final word in these passages as a word of exile, but God saying, come back to me. I will make a way for you to be forgiven. Friends, God wants to dwell with us. God wants us to be in his presence in spite of all that we've been, all that we've done. If you take a deep look inside, you're gonna know you don't deserve it. And yet God says, I'm still coming after you. I still want you. God is calling out to us, I want you to be in my presence. Then we have to ask ourselves, how can this be? How can it be that God could allow us to come into his presence? And this brings us to the final piece of the reparation offering that we haven't talked about yet. The animal of the sacrifice. The ram of reparation. This offering tells us nothing about the procedure for the worshiper. Now, as you read later on in chapter 7, you're going to see that there's some instructions for the priests about how to deal with the ram, but it says nothing to the worshiper. That's unique to what we've been seeing. And there's a reason for that. Because it's the specific symbolism of the animal and not the procedure that is foremost importance here. The offering was to be a ram. Now we ask ourselves, okay, what's the significance of a ram? Well, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, before Moses, 
before the law, before Sinai, before all of this, God reaches out to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And God asks Abram to leave his people, his land. And God tells him, God promises him that if he does this, that he would make a great nation from him. And that Abraham would have these descendants. He would have offspring that were innumerable, greater than the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. He says that Abraham's fame would be great, that Abraham would be blessed so that he could be a blessing, and that from him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 3 says that all mankind is now cursed because of sin. Genesis 12, there is a promise that all the families of the earth can be blessed through this one. Now, God told Abraham that this promised blessing was going to come through one of his children specifically, and that was Isaac. Ishmael was another child that he had that came beforehand. He wasn't the child of promise. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Ishmael was sent away. There is one child, Isaac. The promises depend on him and his line. But here's the kicker. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham this. Abraham, I want you to take Isaac. I want you to go up on this mountain. I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill the son of promise. But if Isaac is put to death, Isaac is the one, it's, it's through Isaac's line, through his offspring, that the promises of God are going to be fulfilled. And so there's a problem. But Abraham, Abraham believes God. Abraham believes that if, if God has said this is the son of promise and this is the way the promises are gonna come, then if I put him to death, somehow God is able to make this work out, to bring him back to life. So Abraham and his son, the son of promise, make their way up a mountain. If you've read the story, you know this, that here is Abraham and here is his son, the son of promise, and, and the son is having to carry the wood that he himself would be offered upon up the mountain for the sacrifice himself. He's doing it in faithful submission to the will of his father. Abraham said, we're going up. Isaac faithfully submits to the will of his father. They get up there, Isaac says, this is great, this is wonderful, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide himself the sacrifice. In trust, in reliance on God, Abraham puts Isaac on the altar, fully ready, raises the knife above his head to plunge it into his son, to sacrifice the son of promise, not knowing how in the world these promises could be fulfilled if the son through whom the promises were going to come was now to be put to death. And as he's getting ready to plunge that knife into his son, he hears a voice, and God says, Abraham, don't do it. And what does Abraham see? He turns, and caught in the thicket is a ram. A ram. Now this ram becomes the representative and the replacement for the son of promise, the son of promise who needed to be sacrificed in order to maintain the promises of God. The ram caught in the thicket becomes the representative of the son of promise who had to be sacrificed to maintain the promises of God. Now, the sacrificial offering of the ram and the reparation offering would have drawn the mind of the worshiper back to this foundational and essential moment in the history of God's people. And what we don't see in the reparation offering is we don't see the laying on of the hands. We've seen it in the other offerings. 
Remember, the laying on of the hands onto the animal means that this animal now represents the worshiper. But here's the thing. The ram already represented something else. It represented this son of promise who must be slain and sacrificed to maintain the promises of God. So there is no symbolic representation for the worshiper with the ram because the ram represents another. Now these rams are offered over and over and over again. But what is ultimately needed is the offering of a promised son who will be able to give his life just one time unto death and yet somehow will be able to conquer death in such a way that there can still be offspring numerous as the sand of the sea that can come through him. Well, hundreds of years later, as we heard this morning read in our Old Testament scripture passage, the prophet Isaiah would prophesy about a suffering servant The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that this suffering servant is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn now briefly to Isaiah chapter 53. In verse 4, we heard this about this suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs. Remember earlier that when they bear their iniquity, they feel the weight of their iniquity. It's the same word. This suffering servant has bore our iniquity, the entirety of the weight of our sin he has experienced. He has come under. He has borne up and felt the weight of our sin. And remember, sin is far greater than you could ever imagine. And he's experienced it all. He bore our iniquity. He carried our sorrows. Smitten by God and afflicted, we esteemed him stricken. Now down to verse 10. And this is where it gets really good. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that offering for guilt is the word for the reparation offering. What this is saying is that this suffering servant has offered his soul, the the totality, the entirety of who he is as a reparation offering. He has offered himself to make amends as the payment for all of our wrong done. And then notice what it says next. He shall see his offspring. Does that ring a bell? A son of promise here who is sacrificed Reparation offering, the ram. You see the connection here? The ram caught in the thicket. Jesus is the ram of reparation. And Jesus can actually see his offspring. How is that possible? Look at the next line. He shall prolong his days. How is it that he can be offered up as a sacrifice, killed, and yet see his days prolonged so that he can see his offspring? Well, the answer, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. Peter When he preaches on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, he's preaching to a bunch of Jews. He says, hey, here's Jesus. He was attested to you by God with miracles and signs. It was was God's predetermined plan that he would be handed over for our death. But Jesus says, you nailed him to the cross. You crucified him. And then listen to this last statement in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
all the way back in Genesis 22, where there's a ram who replaces Isaac, it was always God's purpose that there would be this son, the son of promise, who would offer himself up so that God's holiness could be maintained and yet God could still make good on his promises to bless sinners like us. We think, how can God bless sinners like us? Well, enter Jesus Jesus is offered up. Our debt is paid. It is paid in full. Jesus comes and he makes this offering and yet the grave cannot hold him. It was impossible for him to be held by death and so he, he raises up from the dead and he is still to this day seeing his offspring. The spiritual offspring, the spiritual family of Abraham, every single person who comes to faith is a new child of God, is a new part of this offspring The son of promise dies to keep the promises and then he lives to see them fulfilled. This, friends, is the Lord of glory. This is the eternal son of the father. This is the savior of mankind. This is the king of kings. This is the bright and morning star. This is none other than Jesus Christ. And so we simply end with this, as we heard earlier. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that amends has been made for our sin. Thank you for your son who would willingly come. Thank you that Jesus, like Isaac, would carry the wood of his own sacrifice up the mountain. And Lord, thank you that you did not stop your hand from plunging into your son. But instead, God, he bore our iniquity and you raised him from the dead that we might live for you. May we never take that lightly, God. May our hearts be full of the glory of Christ today. We pray in his name, amen.